So Habakkuk 2, and we will start here at verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death, and cannot be satisfied but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, how long, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of thy people, of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So far. Let us pray and ask for the Spirit's illumination. Father, again, we come before you, and indeed this is your word, and so without your illumination, Lord, it'll just be the words of men. But these are thine words, your holy words, Lord, and so we ask for a spirit to, to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, that we may behold wondrous things from thy great word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning I have uh, three points, and um, they are these, the diagnosis of the proud, the delusion of the proud, and thirdly, the desire of the proud. So the diagnosis of the proud, the delusion of the proud, and the desire of the proud. So when I started working here on verses 4 and 5, as we were looking at it this morning, I realized there's so much packaged into that phrase, the just shall live by his faith. A lot of questions of how Paul uses it. Is he taking it out of context? And then later the book of Hebrews uses it that I thought, I'm going to save that entire phrase for the next sermon on Habakkuk instead of trying to squish it all in this morning. And so what I'm going to do is be talking about the first half of verse 4 and then skipping the phrase, the just shall live by his faith, and move into verse 5. And then next time we'll come back to that phrase. So first of all, the diagnosis of the proud. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. And we've got to remember, just stepping back, for those of you who haven't been part of us, Habakkuk has looked at the people of Judah, seen so much wickedness, so much lawlessness, that he says, God, why aren't you doing anything? And then in chapter 1, God answers, and he says, Behold, I'm actually doing something, but the judgment's not going to come from your own people. It's going to come from afar, so far away that you never expected it. And it's coming from Chaldea, from Babylon. And so God is going to bring in this nation that is going to decimate the ruling power of Assyria and bring judgment. So much judgment, so much wickedness 
that the question really is, okay, God, Judah was bad. Babylon is terrible. How can you do that and still be holy? And chapter 2, verse 1 basically takes that perplexity and Habakkuk says, okay, I'm standing on the watch. I'm watching, Lord, how you're going to answer this question of what seems like incomprehensible injustice coming from a holy God. So last time we looked at verses 2 and 3, and we saw that God says, he gives his answer, and he tells Habakkuk to write down a vision. And we saw the language used there was language of covenant law, and its backbone is right back to Exodus. So what God is going to do grapples back to the Torah, to the giving of the law, and is going to answer the question of justice. And we saw that ultimately it points ahead to Jesus Christ, who is coming two times, once in salvation, and secondly, in judgment. So that is where we are. So verse 4, where we're at this morning, really talks about two kinds of responses to God throughout life. Whether it's Babylon and Judah, whether it's Habakkuk and the prophets, whether it's you and me, we all respond in two ways to God and his revelation. And we see that verse 4a describes the wicked as they are inside of themselves. Verse 4 it says the righteous as they are internally and then live. And then verse 5 comes back to the wicked and moves from what's inside of them to how they exercise their life, what you see and what they do. So that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, realize this. If there are two paths of living, if there are two ways to respond to God, it means we're all going in one of two directions. We're either driving our car down this way, the path of the wicked, and the wheels are spinning, and we're heading to that path, or we're on the path of the righteous. There is no neutral ground. The broad way and the narrow way, and get this, we're all on one of them. You are, I am. There's no mistaking it. So what we see here this morning is going to be the broad way of the proud. Look what it says first. It actually says, behold, look. In the text, right? Very clear. The only time that got word got used before was in chapter 1, verse 6. When that word gets used, it is an alert. It's like, hey, look, God is calling us to focus and fix our attention, to alert ourselves. When you, for example, see in the dark of the night and you're driving on the road and you see cop lights up ahead, and they're flashing. You slow down and you, you, you wonder, you want to look, you want to behold what's going on. And so the lights are flashing this morning. Slow down. Take your mind off of the busyness of work and the hustle and bustle of getting here this morning and trying to calm your kids. Listen and watch, God says. Notice he talks about those that are lifted up. They're swollen. He says they are proud swollen in themselves and their own pursuits. But look carefully at how he describes those who are lifted up. He says his soul, which is lifted up, his nephesh, because that talks about what's inside of man. To see the pride of man is to see what the soul is really made up of. And notice the text says negatively, he is not upright. And I think that's kind of interesting because 
everything that God reflects God and his being is positive. It's upright. It's holy. It's good. And everything man does in sin is a reflection. It's a negativity of everything good. Not upright. Not righteous. Not good. Or we'd say evil. And so using this negative description, upright. Upright means going straight, following the path, in the course. But man in his pride is following the wayward path down the cliff. And so what we see in this text, as God describes people in their core, he calls us to grapple with the uh, reality of reckless injustice that he sees it for what it is. And that when God now says they are not upright, Habakkuk's question is in some senses answered. Because it means that God looks right into the heart of Judah, right into the heart of Babylon, and has already given his sentence. And so all the wickedness that continues on in this world right now, you may be wondering, why has God let this happen? Why do the wicked flourish? God has already judged them. Don't mistake it. Our God is in the heavens. Babylon, we see in Jeremiah 50, verse 31, is judged. And you know what's interesting? The sin that gets mentioned for Babylon is his pride. It says, Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. God releases them, but it's a leash, and he will pull back and bring judgment to judge the heart of Babylon. You know, think about this pride. In the eyes of others, we can really look like quite something. You know, you, you think about what you've done. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's the, the, the skill sets you have. Maybe it's the things you've built, the things you've fixed, the way you've dressed your home or your family. And our accomplishments may be seen as something to like, ooh and ah, like wow and to marvel at. And we are so quick to define ourselves by what others think of us. Do we measure ourselves against others? And it's so easy to, as the word says here, to swell up with pride and self-boasting and boasting of our own merits and worth. What this text reminds us of is that everything we do and everything that resides in our hearts is before God. And as oil and water, pride distrusts and despises God's all-sufficiency. Do you believe do you believe that you can chart your own destiny? You know, especially young people, you've got life in front of you. I've got this one. Can't wait to get out of the house, call my own shots, build my own little empires. Does your soul carry the flag of the enemy as you chart your course in life. You see, the soul that is lifted up and swollen inside has no room for God, for him that was lifted up on the cross to die for sinners. 
The Apostle Paul calls such boasting, he calls it glorying in the flesh. You know, really, at the end of the day, what can we boast of before God Almighty? You know, when a blazing torch sets on fire, the stubble, what's left is but the black ashes that get blown in the wind. And so the merits and the accomplishments of man and the things we think we are so successful in will pass through the fires of judgment. And the Apostle Paul talks, even for the believers, about works of wood, hay, and stubble that will not last, and works of silver and gold that will last. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and your notions of who God is is one that kind of gives room for self-aggrandizement. This is why when we get into theological questions, what we are so careful of is to safeguard the supreme holiness of God. And any theology that starts to poke into the holiness of God is really man moving in and setting up shop. You see, pride is like a parasite that thrives off of the applause and the praise of men. But God will not praise it. God hates our pride because it does not magnify him and him alone. The Apostle Paul says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Shouldn't we as beggars bow before the king? Is it not appropriate for servants to give honor to their masters? Let us do away intentionally and guard for the teetering shack of self. Let us abandon our confidence in our own merits and worth and consider only and always Jesus Christ, only his merits, only his worth. Is Christ not the only one who should be exalted in our lives? Does worthiness, think about that, worthiness. If you think, well, what makes someone worthy? Is it not something that directly corresponds to holiness, loveliness, majesty, and dominion? And all of those belong to one, to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You see, before Jesus Christ, we have nothing to, wor- to, to boast in. Because his holiness is impeccable. His majesty is incomparable. His dominion is supreme. Let us move over. Let us make way. Let us make room for Jesus in our lives and him alone. Let our praises then be clear and true. Because a soul that gazes upon the loveliness of Christ and sees him and beholds him with the eye of faith the just shall live by faith by the eye of faith that soul cannot but boast of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone which brings me to my second point the delusion of the proud we're going to skip over and move into verse 5 here Verse 5 talks about, Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine. What we're going to see here is God directly and in an analogy addressing Babylon, the delusion of Babylon. 
That's the question. Now, how often haven't I thought, or maybe you've thought, or we've heard people say, I can't believe where this world is going. Why don't people see it? Why don't they see what they're doing? How can people be so wicked to one another? Why don't they stop the madness? Why this moral nosedive into abominations? Well, Habakkuk has, or he, sorry, is revealed this grim truth that it is because of the corrupted heart of the wicked. And, he, and the Bible says now it will continue in a persistent way because he transgresseth by wine. It's an analogy here. He's a proud man. To transgress by wine, we all understand what happens. It is to get drunk. And the Babylonians were specifically notorious for being drunkards and lovers of wine. But drunkenness is not the chief transgression. Rather, it is the agent by which pride really shows itself. Okay, It is in wine, in the excessive use of wine, that man's heart is shown. The drunkard, think about that, the drunkard becomes arrogant and proud. But after he, the wine has worn out and he's sobering up, he realizes his strength, all that boisterousness was just in the wine. It wasn't really in himself. He made much of himself while he was on the booze. And afterwards, the sinner has nothing left. And he realizes he's just a slave to his lusts. Oh, how much richer it is not to feed and feast on those things which elevate ourselves, but to feast on Christ Jesus. His spirit, unlike wine, will not leave us. It will not leave us alone. His strength, unlike the strength of wine, is a saving strength. The Bible says, for when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Unlike Wine, which you need to keep drinking and to keep your pride going, his provision is a constant provision. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. Oh, for the drunkard, the wine tastes good. Babylon just kept consuming this wine. It feels good in the moment to chase after material things, doesn't it? It can give you a great rush to be pursuing a career, to be pursuing things that elevate yourself, even good things, social event after social event. It can feel so good when people like you, when you're the center of the crowd. It can feel so good when people praise what you have done. And you're maybe, maybe getting intoxicated with all of these likes, all of these check marks, all of these smiles and thumbs up and the attention you get. What do we consider a kid who rips open his birthday present, grabs it, leaves the wrapper strewn all over the ground, runs off into their room, ignores the rest of the family, hasn't said a word of thanks to the parents, doesn't want to go come for dinner and be with the family because he's consumed with that thing he just got. What do we call that? Selfish and entitled. Selfish and entitled. You see, when we start to seek fulfillment in God's gifts, we are selfish and entitled. And we are transgressing. 
The man who is drunk with wine, drunk in his sins, will still boast of himself. That's amazing. He's so full of himself, he'll still boast of his own merits. And perhaps that's how we came this morning, having some sense of, I'm pretty good before God, and in the scales of God's righteousness, I'm not as bad as them. Oh, how the parable of Jesus to the, about the Pharisee and the publican speak to us. The Pharisee, it says, stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Oh, look at the finger pointing. Look at the elevating of self. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Oh, I come to church. I'm sitting here this morning. I open my Bible. I've got all the books of the Bible in order in my head. I can look them up. I'm faster at a sword drill than anybody because I know my Bible so well. Remember what Jesus said? Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. By nature, we are born with the Pharisee lurking in our hearts. And heaven's gates are barred fast shut to those who come there presenting even a drop of their own merits. You may take armloads of gold, of fool's gold, sorry, to the bank, but they will not accept it. Let us do away with that wine of self-intoxication. Its sellers only provide stale wine. It tastes of death, not of life. How worthy then for the believer are the merits of Jesus Christ. How acceptable he is to the Father. The only way to pass heaven's bar is in him and him alone. Oh, our Lord Jesus was not a proud man. He could have boasted of his infinite glory, right? He died, yet he died with the shame of a common criminal. The Bible says he was numbered with the transgressors. And from our Lord Jesus' veins flowed the blood that paid for our transgressions, our inflated pride. In him the stain of self is thoroughly washed when we come to him, having abdicated ourselves and receiving his merits alone by faith. We're going to look into that next week because one thing that happens with faith is it becomes this almost transaction, walking the aisle, signing the card, and going on living for self. That is not what it means when the Bible says the just shall live by his faith. We're going to look at that. Habakkuk's word here about the transgressing by wine are quite prophetic. Remember, he had to inscribe all this stuff. Well, there was another time in the Bible where an inscription gets made on a wall. You think of where we're going here? It's in Babylon. Let's turn to Daniel 5 for a second. Daniel 5. These words are so prophetic. 
And notice how the book of Daniel corresponds with that phrase of transgressing by wine. Starting here at verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Oh, to mix the lust of man with the holy things of God. That's what he's doing. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And now the writing. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now skipping ahead to verse 22, when he gets the interpretation. And thou his son, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, O Belshazzar, has not, see the words, humbled thine heart. Though thou knewest all these things, referring to the things that took place with his father, but has lifted up thyself, same words, swollen thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass, iron, wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hands thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, thou hast not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many, tekel abharin. This is the interpretation of these things. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is given unto the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. A little late. A little late. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. That was the end of Babylon. And you see the explicit descriptions with wine, arrogance, and stiff-arming the ways of God. Wine robs even the strongest of their reason. Our nation, Canada, is drinking itself into a tailspin of irrationality because that's what the wine does. It makes you irrational. Insanity is being vented from those who are drunk in their own wisdom. You know what's interesting? Nebuchadnezzar, when he gets humbled, remember he eats grass, 
And he says he makes even the basest, the lowest rulers of empires. God will set up base rulers to show us that we're really not a whole lot. We put our governments in. We are guilty. But God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He puts them in ultimately. And so let us pray humbly for the conversion of our leaders because events like what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar can happen. Pray for a humble leadership. Pray that God shows us how weak we really are and remember that we are dust. A wine can be very sweet to the taste, but it is numbing to the senses. And so there's only one, only one whose sweetness refreshes the weak. One who's, who will brighten the mind with good things instead of dulling our minds. The Bible says he raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the needy out of the dunghill. The Bible says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. The great Puritan Richard Sibbs said this. He said, there is something in Christ answerable to all the necessities of God's people. And not only so, so but to their full content in everything. In Jesus, you will find full satisfaction you won't find it in the things of this world. Stop chasing it. Stop intoxicating yourself. Feasting on wine births regret. And I think we all know what it means to regret what we've done after the party's over, after everybody's walked away, and the house is a mess. You might live in regret, won't you? But those who feast on the sweetness of Christ. Get a life that honors him and is continually satisfied in him. You see, in pride we resist help, but Christ, we saw, came to help the helpless. For us who lay down our arms. Which one are you? Are you going here, shouldering your hope and your resolve? Are you going to keep looking at the empty glass of wine for another sip, trying to pour more in? The glass always ends up empty, doesn't it? You always need to put more in. You always need to ask someone else to fill it. Don't you thirst? Don't you thirst for someone, for something that always satisfies, that is always giving, that is always a fountain of life, for fresh waters that keep your souls filled, filled, Jesus Christ came on the Feast of Tabernacles when they would bring water and pour it on the altar and mix it with wine. Jesus said in the middle of the feast, he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And so, instead of having an appetite to advance our egos, let us have an appetite for heavenly things to advance God's glory. Last point. The desire of the proud. Notice what it says in the text. Neither keepeth at home. You see, the proud are actually never content. 
What is at home, what they've accumulated, is never enough. Because you'll always need more money, more power, more toys, more status, more likes on Facebook, more information in your head. It will never satisfy you. And that is why once that gift is given on your birthday or at Christmas, what are human inclinations? Especially we see this in children. A week later, they're like, Mom, can I have this? They're never satisfied because contentment is so foreign to the heart that is given to itself. Oh, it's enslaving to be discontent, actually. Do you find maybe yourself restlessly unable to enjoy your family for a long time or your comforts or your friends? Matthew Henry calls this what this person has, neither keepeth at home. He calls it perpetual uneasiness. He said, though the home be a palace, yet to a discontented mind, it is a prison. In contrast with the righteous, the proud actually never settle. They're always restless. The purpose of life is always elusive. And they're looking for it and looking and looking. And they, they try to buy it. They try to win it. Though they'll never have it. Perhaps, perhaps you are unsettled and dissatisfied. Are you too proud to admit you need help? It's hard, isn't it, to admit I need help. Many drunkards won't stay at home. They avoid homes, right? Drunks go out. They banter in the streets. But when our souls are contented in Christ, it is at home. And it is always leaning on our beloved Savior. The heart of the proud is this the drunkard which either leaves his home or some drunks come home and destroy their families, beating up their children and their wife. The heart, sorry, the home of the humble is safe and secure in Christ and always protected, always contented in him. With Christ, our great reward, dear people, we have a home. In him is rest, away from the restlessness. Have you ever read those accounts of saints who were put in solitary confinement, in some prison camps, maybe during World War II? I remember those accounts. And when they come out, sometimes years later, they say that those hours and those seasons in the darkest Dungeons of the solitary confinement were the sweetest times of their life. They have there found the sweet rest in him that outstripped what they had on the outside. You see, it doesn't matter where you are. It matters in whom you are. But pride... Is the Bible says, as him who enlarges his desire as hell and is as death, cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. You see, bride has babies, discontentment, 
And soon it becomes a lust that, like it says here, is like hell, like Sheol that is out of control. The realm of the dead has arms open, wanting more souls, wanting more for itself. It is a monster that always devours. It is never giving back. But we can't miss the parallel here. Look carefully at verse 5 when it says, But gathereth unto him all nations. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. Habakkuk's plea. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? And so Habakkuk put that in front of God. And now in verse 5, God repeats it back. He sees it. He restates it. He is well aware of the arrogance and he has judged it. Notice that it says in the text, but gathereth unto him, unto himself, all nations. You see, pride, where pride moves forward, where pride starts to devour, others are turned into objects to be used. You think of the pornography industry where so many people are used as objects. Men, especially, we must hate, hate, hate what is happening. It, so many young men are given to the pornography industry and they are turning women into objects to be used. It comes from the pit of hell. Do away with it. You will never find contentment there. Do away with it. It has an appetite that is willing to sacrifice everything or anyone for itself. Left to ourselves. I'm going to pose this as a question. Do you believe that left to yourself, tyranny breathes under your sinful heart? If God did not withhold, if God did not leave his grace to restrain us, we would be no different than what we saw in World War II, where some of the soldiers in Hitler's Third Reich would go home at night, have their child on their lap with smiles, hug their wife, be great family men, only to go back to work the next day and gas the Jews. 300 years before that happened, the Puritan Ralph Venning, in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, writes this. He says, though all these things are not done by every sinful man, because you might think, oh, I would never do that. He says, but all, are all of them in the hearts of all sinners in their seed and in their root. The seed is there. And then he goes on. And this is what I put an arrow by in my book because I thought it was so profound. He said this, what is done by any man would be done by every man. What is done by any man would be done by every man if God did not restrain. Don't look up 
with your noses lifted high at what the Hamas did. What happened there condemns my heart too because that seed left to myself is in me too. Thanks be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ that begets new life. And unlike the proud who forcibly heap to themselves all nations, Christ's call for the church is not to coerce, not to have a jihad, but it is to win the nations for the gospel. Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world and mathetes, make disciples, followers of all nations. Tell them the good news. Draw the nations in. Teach them. Baptize them. People through the gospel are not coerced. They are made willing followers. But how does that work, you might ask? Because that seed of sin is in them. It is because the spirit goes where the gospel goes, begets new life, opens eyes to behold our wickedness, our desperation, and look at Jesus Christ, the great Savior. In the gospel, people are made willing followers. They are discipled, loved, and saved. But... The proud, it says, look at the text, and cannot be satisfied. Have you realized that pride turns us into misers rather than ministers? Pride is like a thorn bush that grows and grows and starts to overtake. But no one wants to touch it because it hurts. You don't want to get close to proud people. Here's a question I just want you to think about. Perhaps your loneliness has underneath of it lurking pride. You're too proud to go up to people. You're too proud to take an interest in others. You're too proud of what people may be thinking of you. Because at the center is yourself. And you're lonely. And now you mope. Think about that. Think about that. Some people sitting here this morning, and you might not say this, I don't think anybody would say this, but you might be thinking it. You might be thinking, if I abdicate myself, if I don't chase my dreams, I won't be happy. Where did that lie come from? Whose pulpit preaches such a gospel that by pursuing yourself you will be happy. Such lies come from the pulpit of the devil, not from the scriptures. Because the Bible tells us that submission to God is the way of freedom, life, and happiness. We are the most free when we are the most submitted to God. You're not free if you're on an island doing whatever you want. No, you need God as your master. That's why St. Augustine said many, many years ago, he said, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I want to quote here another Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs. He said, A soul that is capable 
of God can then be filled with nothing else than of God. This ultimately is the secret of contentment as opposed to dissatisfaction, to be filled with God, to know Christ and to press on to know him more in all areas of life. Are you pursuing Christ? Are you hungry for more of Jesus? Are you studying the word with taste buds, salivating to see Jesus Christ, to know him more, his riches, his goodness? He goes on and he says, when we know him and press on to know him better, we become like him. We are changed from glory to glory. When we know him and press on to know him better, he says, we rest in his providence and provision. Suddenly what seemed like bad is actually turned into a vehicle to know him more. And we follow his call for us, not seeking our own agenda, but content with his life. Some of you may have had the the privilege of buying a new car. When your car gets the first dent and the new car smell disappears and the shine fades and it starts to decay and soon the stereo doesn't work and you have to hit it every time to get it going, it rusts and eventually it quits. Now you need to call your mechanic. Please come help. Have you had that? You've heard of it? You can picture this. Don't you realize all these things are not meant to be permanent? They're not meant to make you happy. Instead, desiring and pursuing and knowing Christ is pursuing him whose worth will always shine. It is filling your heart with a contentment in him whose fragrance is always filled with the aroma of goodness and satisfaction. In Jesus Christ, you are knowing him who ever shines with perfect radiance, whose majesty is so much more than cars and trucks and homes and dresses and picture-perfect families. It is knowing him who is the highest, the greatest, the most satisfying. Why settle for less? Why settle for the decaying when you can have the eternal? You see, verse 5 and verse 4 here, the implications are clear. When man is left to himself, he becomes mad. And Babylon is the archetype of the human heart. As we saw... She is weighed and found wanting. The judge of all the earth has given his decision. Remember how I opened up? You're on a path. Proud, pride, or faith? Self or Christ? Soberly consider which path you are on. Soberly consider this, what you need before you when you look through the window of your car is a clear vision of who you are, a maggot, dust, but more than anything, a clear vision of who Jesus Christ is. 
Because your desires, just like the desires of this proud man, will either be an abyss and an unruly monster that uses others and is never happy, or your desires will be as a contented child who is safe in his mother's bosom and secure and happy. Will you, will you make it your business to reflect much on Jesus Christ and repent of the feeble crutches that always want to present themselves, to lay down the arms of pride that are loading themselves against heaven. When it comes to that day, and the day may come sooner than you think, what will your plea be? Christians, exercise that plea often. Preach to yourselves many times. These simple words, I, I, I hope everyone here can agree with this. Guilty on my own merits, but found perfectly righteous in his merits. Temptation will come. Guilty in my own pride, but found righteous in his excellence. The meek, Psalm 22 says, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we realize Babylon lurks in each one of us by nature. We would be given to wine, was it not, for the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, how we thank you for sovereign grace. How we worship you, Lord, that you have condescended and have stooped into lowliness so that we, the beggars, might be raised into the riches of the King of Heaven. Oh Lord, I pray, help us to consider our path and to turn to Jesus in His name.